Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life's Out of the Park podcast series. Today we welcome Drs. Wes Abram and Alan Hilton discussing the global war in Ukraine. For more information, check out our website at www.framparkcenter.org. I'm Wes Abram. Uh, Alan, it's great to have you here with us today. You know, as part of my work with the Park Center for Faith and Life, uh, I also am the pastor at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, where we do uh, a good number of our programs. And the Park Center actually is deeply connected to the church. Part of our programs at the church are uh, occasional uh, courageous conversations that happen in a room of the congregation after a worship service on a Sunday morning. And we get together and we talk about often topics that have clear sides. And we'll have people in the room learning to talk together as people of faith about uh, sort of pressing topics of the day, be it health care or abortion or political differences of some kind or um, immigration, uh, race concerns, sometimes very sensitive topics. We also sometimes talk about an issue that doesn't have such clear sides but has layers of depth. And today, um, the, the, even the day we're recording this, which is an early April, we had a courageous conversation at Pinnacle about the war in Ukraine. Uh, there were many people in the room who supported the war. I think everyone understands this is a war of aggression. And yet there were multiple points of view, Alan, and you work with churches on uh, conversations both across different uh, differences, but also within differences and um, and different layers of um, gradation and how we learn. So what do we learn in a time of global war? when there is clearly an aggressor and a victim, at least it seems to be that case, and that we are on the side of victims, what can we still learn from each other from multiple points of views, and, and what did we learn today? So there's a, an initial step that has to do with what courageous conversations are, which is an attempt to get better at talking and listening to one another with a golden rule-ish entry point. We speak as we would want to be spoken to, uh, listen as we'd want to be listened to. So one one bit of progress stands outside the issue and is just in the the muscles that in a polarized and tribal political society, the muscles that we need to develop in order to stay in conversation with one another. But beyond that, as you say, Wes, if, if this isn't health care where you're either for the government doing a lot of it or the private uh, sector doing a lot of it, or you're for this kind of immigration or against it. This is a more nuanced question because of the relative unanimity uh, against this war in the in the room. So today we heard a whole lot of different entry points for how we as people of faith might approach the way we think about this war, the way we respond to it uh, with our money with our lives with our church um and and it it today's conversation i thought they did a a really good job of airing a variety of entry places for that so we got everything from one one person who and i didn't laugh because i i dismissed it i laughed because it was interesting to me uh one person who said we have mar- the west has marginalized russia and made it in a it's sort of in a Versailles after World War One way, made Russia the poorer stepchild, and therefore uh, to to reclaim uh, reclaim status or identity, there's a natural recoil. This man uh, suggested that we not annex Russia, but include them in NATO and 
and and conversation and things would get better on the other hand there were a lot of comments that one uh, one person said we need to be a part of assassinating <laughs> Putin we we moved from that level of conversation into well how how do faithful people in in the United States right now watch this war and not ignore the ways that we might be a part of aggressions that are motivated um, by religious, political, you know, a, a complex of issues. How we might have, how we might understand how one might be able to be sucked into that. How we might take responsibility for the ways that that American uh, politics and American religion have done this before. You know, and Alan, in preparing or thinking about having a conversation in the church about the conflict in a way that doesn't just simply become a commentary on what we're seeing on CNN or other news outlets. I began to kind of look for other sources of news and along the way found uh, a declaration from the Center for Public Orthodoxy at Fordham University, which is kind of a think tank for Eastern Orthodox Christianity and has the reputation of being a a kind of um, a think tank for the kind of liberalizing or liberal wing of of Eastern Orthodoxy, and they have published a, a, a declaration, which is called a declaration on the Russian world, the Ruski Mir, Mir meaning world in Russian, or thought, or worldview, or cosmos, the Ruski Mir teaching, and it has been signed by over 1,200 uh, people at this point, uh, many Orthodox theologians um, behind this, and it raises up the religious dimensions of this conflict that isn't often heard in the media and has leads to our conversation today in the large group about how the church is often uh, recruited into political and economic conflicts and also can drive them. And I am not Eastern Orthodox and uh, I'm not in a position to make commentary on conflicts in the Orthodox world without also noting conflicts in Western Christianity and the Protestant world and the like, ways in which this happens in America uh, as well, that conflicts over the relationship between faith and state, church and state. But understanding that those valences, those conflicts are playing out in the Russian inv invasion of Ukraine opens up a way of looking at this conflict that is not often seen in the media. And in this case, we're talking about a, a conflict within Eastern Orthodoxy over who is in charge of the Russian or the Ukrainian church. Is it the Bishop of Moscow or the Patriarch of Moscow? Or is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church an independent church? The Ecumenical Patriarch in Constantinople just a few years ago recognized what's in Eastern Orthodox world called autocephaly, the autocephaly or autocephalic nature of the Ukrainian church, that it is an autocephalous church, meaning it has its own head. It is independent of the patriarch in Moscow. The patriarch in Moscow objected to that. Now there is conflict between these two patriarchates about the status of the Ukrainian church and the patriarch in Moscow is supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine to restore sovereignty of the of the Russian church over the church in Ukraine which raise and and orthodoxy throughout the world is dividing over this including in America those are supporting the Russian patriarch um or the patriarch in Constantinople how is it that christians are so divided when we are called to love each other 
How is it that we kill each other uh, often in the name of the very church that we claim preaches love? Yeah, so in the setting of the conversation in our intro, you you mentioned Stanley Hauerwas, the great American theologian at Duke University, uh, for a lot of years may still have on his door a modest proposal that the Christians of the world quit killing one another, right? Um, and whether figuratively or literally or physically, um, we do this a lot. And and it's not like we invented it in this generation or the generation before. It's been happening since very early in Christianity. And I'm, this is the realm in which I do a lot of work, and I don't have a pat answer to why this happens other than human frailty and passion that gets amped up when we are talking about our dearest convictions. Right? There's there's a lot at stake. It, one of the great things that you're uh, sort of informing our group today about Ruskimir and about the sort of religious underpinnings of what looked to American news people as a, as a political war, right, or an economic war, uh, introducing the, the um, religious elements of that help to give it contour and motivation uh, that it hadn't had before for the people in the room. And one of the things that I found, uh, if, if we can't answer why do Christians keep killing or, um, or kind of savaging one another, one of the things that we know is that the complex circumstances of any war produce in us the possibility of relating to the humanity of all participants, that came out a, uh, a couple of times today, produce in us from a distance, um, if if people uh, give it to us or report it to us or uh, somehow open it in ways that appeal to our humanitarian instincts rather than uh, sort of make us cheerleaders, um, this, this group worked hard, I think, to move into, well, what would it be if my religion was motivating me to go to Ukraine and fight a war, or if my religion was motivating me to defend against that? I've, I've never been in a religious war. How does this go? I think it helped the imagination of what's going on, and it gave it three to five dimensions rather than sort of the flat political economic um, analysis, right? Religious wars are no new thing in the in the history of the world. Uh, on the Christian side, we've done uh, crusades. We've done inquisitions, which are a violent form of enforcement. We've done Catholic-Protestant religious wars in Europe in early modern times. We've done manifest destiny as a doctrine that allows people who are coming from Europe to the New World to take take new territories and a th sort of thinly veiled Christian motivation to make uh, make believers out of the people sometimes, but but in some ways a lot like a land grab, a lot like an aggressive incursion, all within that ambit of theology, right? We're all within the province of. What do we think about God? What do we think about people? Which is daunting. I mean, John Lennon had to kick us out of his imagine, right? Um, imagine there's no heaven, no religion, too, in in trying to imagine a world that was at peace. That's an indictment. And, and giving ourselves access to our role in that history 
is a beginning point, I think, for allowing us to imagine not being that same agent in the future. And we all have complex identities. We think on, you know, from, we think as citizens of a nation, we think as people of faith and citizens of a kingdom or a realm of God. And, you know, as a citizen of America and, you know, a, a amateur at geopolitics, I look at this war and think, oh, we need to support the Ukrainian resistance to the invasion. There is no question about that. I look at this as a person of faith, and my thought is, where is Jesus in this? And I, there is no space that's God forsaken. You know, God is in the soldiers of both sides. God is in those moments where choices are made. God is nudging and in the in the conscience of everyone in this in this war. If I were to look for Jesus, I would probably find him on the borders receiving refugees and giving care and in the homes in Poland that are receiving refugees into their living rooms and into their guest rooms. I'd see Jesus, you know, and in Romania and Hungary and uh, Moldova and those places and wonder how we can, you know, Jesus, how we can be of support there and to be with Jesus in that work. Jesus is with the victims in war and and yet we also are citizens of a polity and a nation and make political decisions. But I want, I strive and want those, the political decisions to be temporary and uh, and tactical, the strategic, the the decisions that have a longer impact are those of compassion and love and care for the victims. Um, but those are hard balances to walk in the real world, right? Um, it's hard to be a pacifist, right? <laughs> it's hard to be a pacifist. Um, we had a person in our conversation say, I am a dove. I am a, and uh, another say, blessed are the peacemakers, bring bring Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers in. But this man said, I am a dove. For years I have been a dove. Essentially saying I'm a pacifist. But in the last couple months, as I've watched this war, I've been getting more hawkish. Right? How... How does a, a follower of Jesus respond to that tension? I mean, we, we have Bonhoeffer as an example of a person who, who was very nonviolent and, and uh, you know, a, a Gandhi, Gandhi follower in some ways, and, um, and yet got to a point where he felt he needed to uh, become violent in attempting to assassinate Hitler. The, the tensions that exist uh, between the charge to love enemies and turn the other cheek on the one hand and the uh, the desire to help God get the world right <laughs> in a way on the other are hard to navigate, are hard to navigate. Um, I, when you were talking about uh, the people who are giving humanitarian aid and receiving refugees, I thought one of our people paired Jesus, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, and Mr. Rogers, look for the helpers. Right, look for the helpers, and and if you're looking for where God is at work in this, look for the people who are coming in alongside. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a tangled war is a tangled mess, and this war is a tangled mess, uh, and it it's worth it's worth our prayers, and especially maybe our humble prayers. Um, and one of the more moving perspectives we hear in this is the question about what are we not seeing? What, you know, this conflict is being played out on CNN and we have a 
you know, a leader of Ukraine who's very media savvy and has been very effective in keeping the attention of the West. Where are there conflicts in the world that we have a stake in that we know nothing about that are happening even today? in Yemen and you know other places where the conflict is not so clear as a war but there is a con- a chronic level of violence uh the violence of poverty the violence of lack of opportunity and the violence on the streets um you think of Haiti or um occupied territories or other places you know within where conflicts bo- aren't you know boil and boil and boil uh that we don't pay attention to yeah and i i appreciate that because one of the one of the ways that the apostle paul puts human value into play is he says this this person is created by god and christ died for this person therefore this person is worthy of my first attention and my deference right my my love uh, just by being just by being a god created christ died for kind of person but we have our qualifiers and in this case uh, the Ukrainian uh, people are more European and Western than, for instance, Rwandans, uh, Hutus and Tutsis were, or than a number of the, the peoples that you're naming, whom we just forget about or don't see or American policy doesn't address. Um, so how we value human lives and how we relatively value them is a troubling thing to probe deeply because it, it exposes maybe something we aren't seeing about ourselves that makes us also not see certain certain forms of suffering certain uh peoples who are suffering and and yet so that's that's all on the one hand on the other hand i've been heartened to see the outpouring from the american people and the american church toward ukraine so i don't want to say well you didn't help the others don't help these people Right, so it's a it's a question of expanding the compassion that is being generated by a, a good publicist and uh, and the real suffering of real people, expanding that and figuring out ways to what be the publicist for other other places of trauma and damage and and do you know what I mean? I think the and, the and yet and the build on this is a great way to conclude our, this conversation right now to continue to think about the and yet and to continue to build on this. So more conversations to be had, but I'm grateful for your time today, Alan. This is Alan Hilton, who works with House United Ministries and or the House United Movement, uh, works with churches on ideological and theological cultural reconciliation and is a um, partner and friend of Pinnacle Presbyterian Church and the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. I'm Wes Avram, and I'm grateful for all of you who are listening today.